Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I'm really excited to introduce you to Jeremy Meltzer. Jeremy is a social entrepreneur. He's the founder of I Equals Change, Australia's fastest growing social enterprise tech startup. I Equals Change partners with online retailers, making it simple for them to give back $1 from every sale and uniquely empower their customers to choose where it goes. I Equals Change has already raised $775,351 and counting, impacting the lives of over 235,000 people in 14 countries by helping fund best practice women and girls development projects. In July, I Equals Change became the first social business to win an Australia Post Aurea Online Retail Industry Award for Best Bootstrapped Growth Initiative. Wow, what a journey! Jeremy, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so happy to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's get straight into it. Can you start by talking us through the I equals change concept? Sure. So in essence, it's it's very simple. We wanted to find a way that uh, businesses could give back in a way that hadn't been done before by making it very simple and transparent. And so, in essence, it's a simple way for a brand to commit a donation with every sale. Currently, we're only working with online retailers. And the idea I had was how could we essentially flip the model? So, instead of brands asking customers to donate, I thought, what if the brand gives back, uh, really has some skin in the game, and then lets their customer choose where it goes. As uh, simple as that sounds, it hadn't really been done before as, as a technology sort of solution, as a plug-and-play uh, way in which brands could easily do so. And so that was the genesis of the idea about six um, – well, six years ago at about 3 a.m. Um, and I've been, very, I've, been, I've been very stubborn since then because – as um, I'm sure most of your listeners will know, to get anything off the ground is hard and uh, it's, it's been hard and it's been rewarding, but it's been the, the, uh, the, sort of the, the unfolding of this simple idea, which I felt has always wanted to happen because of the, the doors that have opened so generously and, and beautifully on, along this journey that has kept me at it. Yeah, and don't all our best ideas happen at 3 a.m.? They seem to. Sometimes we should. In fact, often we should probably just go to sleep and forget about them. Yeah. Um, but but some of them, some of them won't leave us alone. Yeah. Exactly. So you said this is something that hasn't really been done before. So what was the selling point when you approach brands? What was sort of the trigger point to get them in? It was hard because uh, brands typically haven't a done this. Uh, those that have. It's been done with often often 
good intentions, but it's been opaque. It's been unclear where the money goes and how much is being raised. Uh, or Bram might do it for a month, say we're going to give away X, you know, align it with one product for a month. Uh, and so it's been an evolving space, you know, since I'd say the 70s. Um, the, the notion of corporate social responsibility uh, to one that is now – uh, there's, a, there's a great demand, especially by millennial consumers, saying they want full transparency and they want to know that a brand has a purpose beyond their product. Uh, and most brands don't, and they don't know where to start. Uh, and so it's been really exciting to watch what was a very hard sell about four years ago, once we had an initial sort of um, prototype up, to now uh, being in a space where brands are approaching us. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. You mentioned transparency a couple of times there and you talk about the importance of radical transparency. What do you mean by that? So when I had this idea, I mean, I remember growing up and seeing the pink ribbon on the Mount Franklin water bottle and just something didn't feel right. Like you didn't know where the money was going, how much was being raised, if you could find the fine print, you could actually, you would see that at, at I think it was $50,000 uh, capped uh, by mem from memory, uh, you could be therefore buying that bottle of water and making no impact at all because the money had been had been raised already that they had committed to donate. And so there was no transparency around it. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of um, scepticism, if not cynicism, by the Australian population around the NGO sector and where the money goes and the impact that it has. And a lot of that is a result of not intentionally, but a lack of transparency. And I, on the other side, I understand it. I mean, development is complex and it's hard to report back. And it's often done in a language that is not easy for consumers to understand. And so as part of this sort of flipping the, the giving model and wanting to build a platform that made it simple for brands, I thought, how do we, build it through this lens of radical transparency. How do we enable consumers to see using digital tools in real time how much their purchase has helped raise and where it's going and its impact on the lives of people? And as simple as that sounds, it just hasn't been done before. Uh, and it's funny, when I spoke to people, they're like, oh, surely this must exist. I'm like, no, I, I sort of thought it would too. In fact, it's quite funny. Like, if I had a dollar myself, everyone, every time someone tells me, this is like grilled hamburger, where, you know, you go to grilled and they give you a bottle cap. Yeah. And you get to choose where to send, you know, their, their um, where the donation goes. And it's a great example, actually, because people remember the grilled donation and the bottle cap a lot longer than they do the hamburger. So true, and so true. It's the reason I go to Grilled. Yeah, I mean, the hamburger's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, pretty it, good. <laughs> it's that surprise and delight. It's the fact that you know your hamburger is contributing to something bigger than your stomach, which makes you feel good. And in essence, what that points to is something quite profound. And what that is, is that we are, as a community of, of people and, and who we are, we're all consumers, we are looking for our purchases to be experiential. We are looking for our purchases, our purchases to not be just transactional, but to be an experience that touches our heart. Mm. And retailers, from what I've been learning, uh, are generally not 
not great at this. It's not their um, it's not their skill set. Uh, it's not something they are typically required to do. Because uh, what's retail been about? It's about selling stuff and creating a telling a story that hopefully seduces us into buying it. And so the exciting thing now, which is great for the brands that really get this, and there are those standout retailers. Most of them are still in the US, but there are some now in Australia who are realizing that by turning their purchase into an experience that touches their customers' hearts, it is great for business. It really creates this win-win scenario. And yet at the same time, the challenge is how do you do this? And so it's just fortunate we've built this platform and, and has come along when the zeitgeist is really supporting it, when there's this movement of, I mean, 93% of millennials now say they want to buy from brands that give back and they contribute to something bigger than themselves. And so the transparency is really key to that because we're alert and we are very distrustful of business in Australia. Um, we've uh, significantly fallen on, on the World uh, Trust Index um, over the last 12 months. And so transparency is, is key to, to combating that. I think that's such an important point, actually. And I was thinking about that as as you were speaking there. In the past 12 months, particularly in light of the, the Financial Services Royal Commission that we've had, a trust in business seems like it's at an all-time low. And increasingly, I think businesses are looking for new uh, sort of external ways to to validate themselves and to prove that they are genuinely invested in in social impact. And uh, I mean, for you, do businesses view I equals change as an opportunity to build trust with their customers? Yeah, they do. I think they are really starting to understand that this is doing something like this is becoming a must-have. Mm. The key words that stand out, it's, it, like it's interesting, it's kind of like there's these parallel universes between, you know, people go about their lives, they connect with their loved ones, and they are as real as we know how to be. And then we go and we engage with businesses and we, we are distrustful and we expect that we're going to be screwed over if given the opportunity. And we expect that uh, the company exists to make maximise profit at almost any cost. And so we are alert. We're not bringing our fuller selves. We are, we're not expecting integrity and authenticity and compassion and uh, all of those things which we respect and expect from our, our key relationships, our personal relationships. And so we have to ask ourselves why. Why do we have this different rule book? Why do we assume? And that's that's a big systemic problem with the profit motive at any cost. Uh, and we know that's not sustainable any longer for a variety of reasons, of course, socially and environmentally and economically, uh, enormous disparities of wealth, obviously environmental degradation. The planet simply can't sustain this profit at any cost motive. It's not doing anyone, anyone except anyone, any good. I mean, and so we are moving towards a, a world in which uh, and of course, you know, you can cherry pick to believe that this is what's happening or you can kind of, I mean, we all can live in our silos to some degree where we um, we have our echo chambers and we think the world is, um, is going in the right direction and someone can give you data which tells you the opposite. But my sense of working in this space is I'm, I'm very positive. I feel that um, 
you know, business is ultimately made up of good people uh, who want to do good and uh, who are essentially good. And, you know, we're all acting and, and responding from our own conditioning of what we believe is normal. And so there is this enormous unfolding opportunity for business to inhabit deep integrity and authenticity and communicate that with transparency to their customers. And the irony, the great irony is that uh, it's better for business in the long run. The businesses of this world are significantly more profitable. Yeah. And the other point you raised there is about uh, people, businesses consisting of people and that statistic you shared earlier that more than 90% of millennials want to support brands that, that do have a social impact. I imagine it's the same for employees in businesses. Most employees these days want to work for a business that, that is aligned to a social purpose. And I completely agree with you. If there's one thing I've learned from doing this podcast is that there is a plethora of businesses that you know, that just want to, to contribute and to do good and to be part of the solution. Uh, so I feel optimistic as well. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it is, I mean, the figure I'm, I'm aware of is 88% of staff now are actually wanting to work for purposeful businesses, uh, especially millennials. It's interesting, the live giving page where you can see in real time how much is being raised, Pandora, which is one of our, our biggest brand partners, they use that as a recruitment tool for their staff. Wow. That's something that we had no idea until they told us. And we're like, oh, my God, that's incredible. Like they say to their millennial staff, hold us accountable. You can track in real time how much we're raising and how much you'll be contributing to by working for the company and how you can, you'll be supporting us in that endeavor. So it's really been um, exciting to see how brands use this both internally and externally. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I feel like we're sort of describing now what the purpose economy is, but can you define the purpose economy in your own words? It's the move towards deep purpose needing to be built into the DNA of business and one where it is driven by purpose rather than product, one where brands position themselves as a reflection of their values, not just the products that they're selling. It is one where that becomes a deep point of engagement for customers and staff on, a, on an everyday basis rather than just the next trend, the next season, the next influencer, the next social media post. It is one where we're not trying to seduce with product as much as authentically engage our community of stakeholders, our staff, our customers, our planet in a way that actually firstly and, and initially and profoundly uh, shares what the business stands for. Um, and, and, and most importantly, it's a non-negotiable part of who the business is. It's built and baked into the DNA of the brand such that it is almost written as part of the constitution, you know, if, if, the, if the brand were to have one. And uh, it's... I mean, B Corp is doing fantastic work about around this. When you become a B Corp, you actually change your, your constitution. So it becomes a, a non-negotiable part of who the business is. And so there's really no downside in doing this. That's a thing. And, and, and you know, I'm saying as human beings, like, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And so, you know, business has been sort of, you know, bumbling along since the sort of industrial revolution, uh, maximizing profit at any cost. And we've sort of brought the world to the brink. Uh, and now there is this sort of profoundly accelerating movement 
that is demanding of business to have deep purpose and for it not to be just a marketing initiative for one month, for it to be a sort of a, a red line in the sand for brands. Uh, and so it's really interesting and, and even every every day, if not week, we, we see this unfolding uh, within brands who, I mean, in our case, you know, wouldn't speak to us and now they're like, okay, so how does this thing work again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they're, yeah. They're, now they're becoming curious. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned B Corp there. We had Andrew. Almeida on the show a couple of episodes ago, who is the CEO of B Lab Australia and New Zealand. And she talked about the, the legislation that B Corp is trying to have passed in Australia, whereby companies actually can do what's called a mission lock, where they have legally enshrined their, their mission and it protects company directors when they uh, be accountable to non-financial stakeholders. And I'm sure you're familiar with that. And I think it's this sort of corporate law reform that we're seeing is indicative of a huge shift happening in our corporate sector in Australia, which is is really encouraging. It is. And Andrea's fantastic and they're doing incredible work at, at B Corp. And it's, uh, you, know, you know, what often starts or feels like fringe can become mainstream really quickly when the zeitgeist is supporting it. Uh, and it's... I've met the most extraordinary people working in this space, you know, um, people who are, you know, passionate, successful business people, uh, you know, on, on any measure, uh, yet are realizing that the, the head without the heart doesn't bring anyone any happiness uh, or any sustainable joy or any deep sense of fulfillment. Uh, and indeed, that's what we seek in our personal lives. Why do we not expect that of business? Why has there been these two worlds? And I would add the third world being the NGO sector, which is this bastion of, uh, of, of well-being uh, well uh, in, in respect to the outputs they are attempting to have within, in communities and incredible content and stories about people's lives that are being changed. And yet there's been almost a, um, I mean, it's kind of another discussion around the sort of different rule book that the public has for NGOs. But uh, what's exciting is to see, they've created a platform that brings these two worlds together really meaningfully uh, and valuably. Uh, and we've got, all, we've got a whole roadmap of kind of all these cool tools we're going to build to make it even more accessible for retailers to tell those stories of the lives of, of mostly the women and girls that they've impacted. Because they want to tell those stories. A lot of the brands that we work with now are saying to us, hey, you know, we, we've raised X amount for this project. We want to be able to tell those stories. We want to actually lead now with those intimate stories of the people's lives that we've helped change. And I just think that's, that's so extraordinary because they're like the, the shoe they sell, as great or as beautiful as that shoe might be, they're actually going to tell the personal story of a girl in Uganda, for example, who's now going to school because she didn't have to miss school because she didn't have enough sanitary napkins. And their, their $5 with every, um, every sale, uh, the impact that's having on her life is measurable and remarkable. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's heading in a very, very exciting direction. It is, and it comes back to that experiential uh, uh, customer versus a, a purely transactional experience. So it sounds as though millennials are really behind this. Uh, in addition to millennials, what else do you think are the drivers for this change in the corporate sector? 
I feel very strongly it is the the rise of of the feminine. It is the unlocking of the enormous potential of women and girls, which has been held back for thousands of years. Uh, there is, by the end of this year, 2018, projected uh, women's global incomes will have reached $40 trillion. Uh, now, that number sounds like a lot, but considering it was $20 trillion in 2014, that has doubled in four years. That's extraordinary. And so there is this incredibly exciting movement which is complicated uh, and and messy, deeply important because we're talking about unlocking the potential of half the population that has been held back for thousands of years. Now, how that's going to impact business, how that's going to impact uh, stability within communities, how that's going to impact uh, a number of the outcomes around health, uh, around uh, working towards ending gender-based violence, around challenging dominant versions of masculinity, uh, around a number of indices which are still uh, highly skewed, uh, especially in the developing world. But let's not rule out Australia for a second because almost two women a week are killed by their partners. Uh, And so there's a lot of work to do in this space, but it it is now a very robust national and international conversation that has enormous implications for societies and for businesses at large. And so I am incredibly humbled um, to be playing our small part. Uh, I, you know, it's a whole story about why I sort of became passionate about this space, but it's um, that it, that is and will always remain our focus is working to uh, assist projects to help them unlock the potential of women and girls in the communities where they're working. Yeah. You you mentioned there that there's a whole story about why you got passionate about this space. And I know that you've worked with over 20 NGOs throughout the world. Could you go into that a little bit and a little bit about the journey that made you so passionate about this? Yeah, I had a feeling you might ask me that. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's totally fine. I guess, I guess it's, you know, it's interesting for all of us. We because uh, when I speak about this, uh, one of the first things I ask people is just to kind of put their hands up if they care deeply about something. And of course, you know, every hand goes up in the room because we all care deeply about something. And, and I urge everyone to kind of think about, you know, what is it that you're passionate about and why? Because values are a huge unconscious driver for our behaviors. And the more conscious we can become as to why we do what we do and we choose what we choose, that is often profoundly connected to our values, which have been formed often uh, as, as young adults or teenagers or even earlier around the things that we care about. Um, and I feel the more we, we know ourselves and know our values, the more we are aware of the matrix that makes up our choices driven by that emotional stimulus. Because uh, we are not rational creatures as much as we like to think we are. We, we, we're definitely not. And for me, you know, it was I, I took myself off to live in, in Havana in Cuba when I was 21. Um, as you do, I sort of washed up on the shores of, of Havana and I ended up staying there for about over four months. Uh, I had a Cuban girlfriend and really lived in a very poor part of uh, the town, Havana Vieja, but it was a beautiful, it was the old colonial crumbling part of, of old Havana. And very, I mean, although I traveled quite a bit, I, I very quickly realized how naive I was because 
I started to hear um, uh, almost every day stories from from her girlfriends about about men's different versions of abuse when they would speak about their husbands, partners, boyfriends, and and I think what shocked me just as much was they thought that that's just what men do, that this that's just how men behave. They even thought it was, it was a function of their jealousy that they loved them and therefore they were jealous, therefore they were violent if they saw another man look at them and all that kind of nonsense. And I, I, then I lived in Miami for three years, again, working with the Latin American community and living amongst them. And so many, so many stories. Like every woman I met had a story. Um, as you know, have girlfriends with stories. I mean, we all know people in our lives who have stories. And it doesn't have to be physical or sexual abuse. There's so many different forms of violence. Uh, and I'm going to call it for what it is. It's men's violence against women almost exclusively. And I'm not going to sort of pretend to any sort of political correctness around that. Yes, there are other forms of violence. Yes, women can be manipulative, whatever, we're talking about physical and sexual and emotional and financial and all forms of violence, which is almost to 97, 98%, they are men's choices when uh, they choose to uh, engage with what's often their intimate partner. Uh, So anyway, drawing that line in the sand, that became my, I I realised how how much I didn't know. Uh, I realised I'd never studied gender. I was deeply curious about what the hell was going on that uh, men were doing this and had been getting away with it like forever. I'm like, mm. bloody hell, this is unbelievable. Mm. Like where I come from, men don't do that. So why is community? Do they think that's the most normal thing in the world? So I've every time I had the chance to travel, I would go and find these small NGOs, often grassroots that worked with women and girls. So just sit with them, learn from them, ask questions, remain curious. And over time, I mean, I've, I've been to over maybe 20, 26, 26 countries now that work with women and girls and meeting meeting with NGOs in those countries. And it's this, this complex matrix of um, culturally sanctioned belief systems and religiously sanctioned ideas which have normalized a set of behaviors against women and girls, which in some respects are holding back whole countries from flourishing. Like how can you possibly expect – to unlock the potential of your people if half the population are held back. Like, it's just, it's, it's insane. Like, it's a level of unconsciousness which is sort of breathtaking. And yet this is sanctioned by men as a function of our the religions which largely men have invented and interpreted and, and continue to implement. And, uh, and, and cultural practices which we sort of, um, to our own detriment, we still have a sort of sense of cultural relativism as if they're all equal, as if they should be equally respected. Course, that's absolute nonsense. Uh, and so, in meeting with these NGOs, I realised they all needed more funds to do their work. And in the developing world, a small amount of money can go a long way. And coming from an entrepreneurial family, I thought, wow, you know, what if I could somehow create a new funding stream for these organisations? What if we could use the power of business? What if, what if we could? And and I'd never even heard the term social entrepreneur. Never. It was several years later. I'm like, oh, cool. That kind of makes sense. Social entrepreneur. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm doing. I had no idea. I had no idea of this ecosystem. I, like all the really cool people I'm so blessed to know, I'd never met them. I didn't know about this space. I'm just like, wow, there's got to be a way that we can use business to create a sustainable funding stream. And what if we could prove the benefits to business so they kept doing it? And what if we could uh, measure it and measure the impact on both businesses and the NGOs? And so that's been the sort of genesis of what made me 
passionate about women and girls particularly. Uh, and there's so many, I mean, I'm, I'm a very sensitive soul. And, and so, you know, every story I've heard has sort of, I think, broken a little bit of my heart, to mm. be honest. Every story I've heard, and it's been friends and, you know, ex-girlfriends and, and just stories that I've heard and people I've sat with. I was recently in the Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh earlier this year. Wow. Um, and... Yeah, there's no words for the stories that we heard. Uh, we sat with a group of women in the tent, and the look in their eyes was enough. And um, uh, and, and, and rape and killing of children, and it's just um, again another version. And, and of course, we went to you know we're in Rwanda, where uh, you know we all know what happened in Rwanda, and incredible how women have rebuilt Rwanda uh, post genocide and the. The, 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 the degree to which there has been a, a healing in that country, uh, which they largely attribute to uh, empowering women. There's more women in parliament in Rwanda now than any country uh, on the planet. Uh, and women play a very key role, yeah, in the public and private sector in Rwanda. And so I think it's a fascinating case study. When you start almost from ground zero, like Rwanda was soul, its soul was destroyed. I mean, 10% of the population had been murdered over the course of 100 days uh, and, and, and the country was deeply traumatized and it, it gives it, it I feel it's a window into what's possible when women kind of you start again you're like okay women you guys do it you know forgive the pun women you do it you mm. you know let's work together but let's not pretend that men have the answers we have to acknowledge the deep gifts that we offer each other it's not about women running the place any more than it is about men. It's about how do we deeply acknowledge and honor the gifts and the wisdom and the, and the different skills that we have and how do we work together to create something that we're all looking to create, which is prosperity and security and health uh, and and living purposeful lives and, and living with dignity and um, – you simply can't create that when women and girls are being held back from their education or when their clitorises are being cut off or when they're being violated by men or when they're being denied education. Uh, the long-term effects of this are, are, are enormously detrimental uh, and they hold, as I said, they hold whole countries back uh, from, from developing. Yeah. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that journey. I'm so I'm so grateful that you that you would do that. And one of my favorite proverbs, the Chinese proverb, is that women hold up half the sky. And that was the basis for the novel, Half the Sky. Uh, it was one of the first books I ever read on on gender and development. And like as you've so eloquently explained, for me it was that realization that women are the greatest untapped economic resource that we have. And if we can, if we can learn how to how to enable women to um, to thrive, it, it, the the impact that that can make on international development globally is so immense. Yeah, no, thank you, and, and it's it's my pleasure, and I it, I feel I, I want to say because there's there's another side of this, and that is men's journey. Uh, it's not about bashing men; it's a, because men are suffering as well. 
I, I feel it's important to acknowledge there are dominant versions of masculinity uh, that have been holding back men from from realizing their emotional uh, reality and landscape, uh, which has uh, defined them and prevented them from accessing their their softness and their vulnerability to the point where when you do it to a young boy, as he becomes a young man, he doesn't even know what he's feeling anymore. He doesn't have the languages of the tools because sadly in many cultures, including Australia, uh, the dominant version is, you know, don't cry, don't be a girl, don't be a pussy. All this, you know, language which is normalized in, in a lot of communities where Ultimately, it's, it's just denigrating the feminine as if somehow expressing emotions is weak uh, and all this kind of nonsense, which is, is deeply scarring for young boys, because what does it teach them that, that any, any expression of their vulnerability is a weakness rather than what do we now know it to be a strength? And so boys are trapped by these versions of masculinity and they grow up into these gruff, angry, often uh, men who who can't sit with their softness, who can't express their vulnerability. Uh, and is violence a, an expression of this? I, I feel it, of, it often is. It's, only, it's often the only toolkit they have because they haven't grown up with men who have mentored them, uh, mentored them with men who have guided them, with strong women in their lives. Uh, you know, we've lost rites of passage in the West where – to become a man was a journey, and it was it was an ancient journey, which was held by the community. Uh, and so there's a lot of work we have to do, ironically, to return to what we always used to do on the planet, which was hold each other deeply accountable as communities. And so, again, there's, but there is some great work being done in Australia and around the world around challenging these dominant versions of masculinity. And I feel it's, um, it's important this happens because uh, a lot of the, the, the feminist arguments around discounting the experiences of men, and I think we have to acknowledge that it's, it's often because of men that we are in this place, and therefore the work, work has to happen alongside men. Uh, so that together we can actually realize a new set of possibilities in our interactions and in our relationships with each other. And I feel that it's, it's, that to me feels like a much healthier way of, of, of looking at this, this, this issue uh, rather than them and us, you know, men and women, and uh, looking at it collectively, what, how we can contribute to this journey, this unfolding journey together. Oh, I couldn't agree more. You put that so well. And I think it's also about recognizing that masculine and feminine are things that we all embody. We all have both of those qualities and it's not, you know, it's, it's not men that are masculine and women that are feminine, but rather qualities that we can all embody. It's an exciting shift that's happening. It is. And, and even the word, I mean, masculine, feminine, they're just sounds when you think of it. Mm. They're, only, they're just words that we attribute a meaning to. Uh, we are human beings and we have, you know, genetic tendencies and how that, that plays out in our body is, is a function of being, the, you know, X, Y chromosome, et cetera. But, but gender is a construct. Mm. And, you know, the, the, you've only got to travel to another country, you realize it means a different thing in a different place. And so it's, 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 it's enlivening because it means that if it's a construct, then it can be reconstructed. It can be reimagined. Uh, in a way that has created different outcomes 
uh, we're not stuck with anything and, and uh, uh, you know we are deeply conditioned from the moment of birth and I, I, mean, I mean I feel a key question for all of us is if our conditioning hadn't happened to us who would we be what would remain like yeah. who are we outside of our identities like it's a fascinating question isn't it oh, you know yeah. we are born into a country and a time and a family and we adopt a language and an accent and an identity if all of that was stripped back because we could have been born in another place in another time and been and and you know been speaking bengali in, in the himalayas or something um we would be just different but what's the spirit that embodies us who are we without our identities uh, and that idea alone actually can free us from who we think we are and the forces that act upon us. Because it's only, most of this stuff we didn't choose. Like we didn't choose our family. We didn't choose our religion or our school or the stuff that happened to us. It, it just happened to us. It happened. It act, they were agents acting upon us. And often by the time we realized that we could act upon it, a lot of it was, was hardened within us, a lot of these ideas and versions of, 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 of gender and ideas about the world and right and wrong. So it's, uh, it, it's just sort of fascinating, I find, because, you know, we're working with retailers now who it's just been about selling stuff. And now they're having to expand their consciousness to include profound experiences. And I get while it's all messy and no one has the answers anymore. And, and ultimately, I guess to bring it back to business for a moment, this movement is around humanizing business. It's around seeing business reflect our common humanity, which sounds good and feels good, but what does that look like? I mean, we kind of know it's got to head that way, and, and I feel it's this sort of messy unfolding as we demand that the businesses – and what's interesting and worth hearing is that uh, the people are spending more money on experiences and less on stuff as well. For the simple reason that they're the things we remember, right? Like even if it's going out for dinner or it's traveling or it's time with loved ones, uh, these are the things we remember a lot longer than we do the things that we bought. Like, you know, we buy something, we take it home. What happens a week later? We're kind of on to the next thing. We've sort of forgotten about it. Or, you know, we enjoy it when we wear it or, you know, we appreciate having it. But when we look back in our lives, indeed, when we look back in a month, we don't remember the stuff. We remember our experiences. Remember those moments that have touched our heart. And so that is the next frontier for retail, as far as I see it, is that what has been a transaction must become a memorable experience that touches people's hearts. Because there's a rising of consciousness, uh, and you can see it from a, from a variety of places, where people are more discerning around their purchases, and they're spending more on experiences and less on things. And so my sense is that this is both a profound challenge and opportunity, an enormous opportunity for retailers and brands and, and service industries to, to turn what has just been in, 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 in a product, the offering of a product, into a deep experience that has a purpose, uh, that aligns with people's values. And these are the brands you're going to see excel in the next decade. I feel very confident about that. Yeah. Yeah, I feel confident too. And it's really exciting for me coming from an international development background to, to hear what a profound impact brands and the retail sector can have on international development. I think that's mm. really exciting. It is exciting. I mean, there is obviously 
important funding that can be raised, which you know we're already seeing the impact of that with radical change. Uh, and it's it's the storytelling, as I mentioned, and it is. I mean, the, the power of business is enormous. Uh, so how do we use the levers of business, use that which motivates business? Uh, we've been very sort of, on, I guess, entrepreneurial or in, in that respect. Like the, the sell to brand has been less about do it because it's the right thing to do, rather do it because you go, it's going to be great for your business. Uh, and we've actually been able to measure how giving back increases conversions for retailers. So there's a this thing called abandoned cart where we all do it. You know, we put stuff in our cart and we don't buy it. Uh, apparently, Australia has the highest rate of abandoned cart in the world. So about wow. 76%. 76% <laughs> yeah, we're, lots of, we're, we're very aspirational shoppers. Wow. We put things. And the psychology is interesting. We, we, consumers get to the cart. You know, we want to see how much the shipping is. And then we just jump out, right? So anything that reduces abandoned cart even by 1% is, you know, retailers, you know, jump up and down. So what we have been testing, we're starting to get some really great results, is little messages because the iCoChange platform appears post-purchase. So it becomes a customer's final experience that the brand's giving back and you can choose where it goes. So we've been working with our brands say, hey, why don't we test this before purchase, letting because it's a really powerful it's a powerful statement that you give back with every sale. So what if we tested messages which you put on the cart in that in those critical pages at that critical point saying that you you give back uh, and a little message we've come up with is check out and your choice equals change. And we're seeing that these messages are increasing conversions i.e. reducing abandoned cart by up to 6%. Wow. Which might not sound a lot, but it's enormous because even any additional transaction, say the brand earns $100 in revenue, it's only going to cost them another dollar as the donation. So we've actually, in the process of, of proving again and again how giving back can actually make the brand more money. Yeah. Um, and, and from what we understand, this is possibly the first time you've been able to, using data, quantify how a donation can actually um, unlock increased revenue and measure that. Fascinating. So fascinating. I want to finish with my favorite question to finish on, which is what does success look like for you in 10 years? Oh, wow. 10 years. Well, uh, we are going to be partnered with thousands of brands. Uh, we will have created a movement globally. We will be impacting the lives of millions of women and girls each year. Uh, this will have become normalized in business such that if you're not giving back, you're actually not relevant as a brand. Uh, and there will be a, a blending such that you'll be expecting brands to be communicating purpose first the purpose-driven economy, I, I call it purpose-first commerce. It's like brands will be leading not with the seduction but with the integrity and the authenticity. They'll be leading with a story about the impact. They'll be leading with how they're changing lives. And the product will be important but be secondary to people. You've got to want the product. I get it. It must be beautiful and sexy and people are going to want to buy it. But it'll be heart-first and then here's the product, you want it, here's the impact it's going to make, that will be a seamless experience for consumers. Uh, and we will have humanized business and incredible movements like B Corps and others around the world who will be doing their deep work 
around um, CSR and compliance in supply chains and, and human rights. There will be a new normal in this space set uh, based on the tools of transparency, which increasingly everyone has access to. Uh, and we ask, you know, we sit with brands a lot and they often say to us now, you know, once we've sort of had a coffee and if, you know, everyone's feeling a bit more comfortable, they often lean forward and they say, you know what, customers are asking us harder questions than ever before. Like it's brands are realizing that they must, they must be able to answer these questions about, you know, how they make their products and the impact that it has and, and, uh, you know, Pat- Patagonia does this very well. I mean, they're, they're honest. Uh, you know, the, you can't manufacture anything without uh, it creating an output. Uh, and this often has a negative output. How, but how do you, what they call, minimize uh, minimize harm, both socially and environmentally? Mm-hmm. And so by having that sof- sophisticated conversation with consumers and say, hey, we're not going to pretend we're not having an output. We're going to actually talk you through how we do it and how we minimize that. Uh, Patagonia is an incredible example of how, you know, they turn themselves into, I think, an $800 million business annually. Uh, and they contribute about a quarter of that revenue to their transparency, to their community programs, to the fact that they'll mend your old jacket for free. They'll even mend another brand's jacket and not charge anything. I mean, just that kind of stuff which creates love from their customers in a way that you just can't by trying to seduce them. And so I think that will be the new normal. And we're heading there and it's messy um, and we're all working bloody hard and I think we just have to keep doing our bit. Uh, and as consumers, you know, ask hard questions I mean, and buy consciously. And, uh, you know, the, the, we're not, not a drop in the ocean. We're, we are the ocean itself in the form of a drop. And we can all make a profound difference because it adds up very quickly. Just like that dollar with every sale is added up to, you know, almost over, almost $780,000 now. So, um, I love that. I love that as a closing, as a closing point, keep asking hard questions. I say that to myself every day. And I think that's a great takeaway for our listeners. And 2028 is looking like a very good year. I'm, um, I'm really excited to, to follow your journey over the next decade. Thank you so much for, for being here and for being so generous with your, your wisdom and your experience. It's fantastic, and I'm very grateful. Rachel, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Really an honour, um, and uh, yeah, I'm glad that I, was, um, if I can add something of value. That's wonderful. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.